Thank you for this evening. We thank you for your love and your care for us. We thank you for your word. Open your, our eyes to see what you would have us to see today. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 5. We left off uh, with David leading the battle and conquering Jerusalem. And uh, we saw Hiram, king of Tyre, sending wood and stuff to build David a, a palace. And they did, built David a very large, extensive uh, home for himself, a palace. Uh, and that's the first time we've heard of Hiram. Hiram is going to still be king when uh, Solomon takes over, and he's going to help provide Solomon timber for the temple, temple as well. So Hiram's going to live a while. He's got to be a young man at this point in time to be still alive when Solomon uh, starts reigning. And we're going to be starting at verse 13 in chapter 5. And David took him more concubines and wives out of Jerusalem after he was come from Hebron. And there were yet sons and daughters born to David. And these are the names of those that were born unto him in Jerusalem. Shamuhah and Shobab and Nathan and Solomon, Ibhar also, and Elishua and Nechfech and Yephei, and Elishima, and Elishida, and Elifelet. All right, so David has just a few more kids with some really easy names to pronounce. I can just imagine going out to the, to the back porch and having to call that, that list of names out. Uh, I'm sure they were shortened, shortened versions of these names that they would normally, normally call out. So we see here... In back in chapter 3, we saw that David had six children, uh, six boys in Hebron. All right, out of four, from four different wives. He goes to Jerusalem, and it says he gets more concubines and more wives. <laughs> and he ends up having, from this list, 11 more boys, and it says daughters. So there's at least two girls and probably more. And so we know that he ends up with at least 17 boys and at least two girls. He has a pretty large family. Uh, and we go through this whole process of David had a problem with women. He, he pretty much saw one and he grabbed hold of her and took her and it's very clear. We're going to find out that as in most cases the, second, the next generation takes the sins of their parents and amplifies them, and Solomon is really going to amplify his, pro his father's problem with windows. Uh, windows, yeah. Yeah, he put windows everywhere <laughs> with, with women and, and taking, you know, a thousand wives and concubines. You know, and this is the problem we see so often in our own families, in our own relationships, that the next generation takes whatever our problems are and they amplify. If somebody is an alcoholic, you'll see your children taking it to the next step and eventually getting so bad that they're not even a functioning drunk, they're just you know, sloppy drunk losing all their jobs. And it doesn't matter what that sin is. David's was women and Solomon took it to the next step. Uh, it can be your, you know, a thief. You know, the thief trains up his children and they, they're thieves and they usually go bigger and better in their, in their world. Uh, and this is a thing that we see over and over. The good news for us is when we're Christians is righteousness can also do the same thing. You know, your next generation can sometimes be 
if they, catch, if they really catch the vision and catch the dream, they can be more righteous. They get to start on your shoulders. They get to know what you know and then expand upon it. So it can work the other way as well. Uh, even there, though, we see our kids picking up our bad habits <laughs> and amplifying those. Both sides can be amplified. It's a question of which one's going to, to win in the long run. And David, he just likes to pick up women and have children and go to war. <laughs> uh, so I, I can't imagine. I'm not going to try to read these names all over again. <laughs> and I did not look up what those names mean. I, wasn't, I was interested at that point in time. But, uh, they're all his children. <laughs> I do know that uh, when you see the ELI, it's talking. It's it's a partial partial form of God. So God is in many of these is is named in many of those names there. How do you know about Shemu the whale? <laughs> well, Shemu probably was named after something from the Bible. <laughs> uh, it's amazing how many people are named after the Bible. Sometimes they don't even know they're named after the Bible. Uh, from the 16 and 1700s, they purposely named people, named their children after the Bible, and then oftentimes shortened those names because they didn't want to go through those names. Uh, verse 17, but the, when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines came up to seek David, and David heard of it and went down to the hold. The Philistines also came and spread themselves in the valley of Rephidim, and David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go to... Up to the Philistines, will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said unto David, Go, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baha per Azim, and David smote them there and said, The Lord hath broken forth upon my enemies before me as the breach of water. Therefore he called the name of the place Baha per Azim, and there they left their images, and David and his men burnt them. <laughs> All right, so here's David's really big first battle as king over all of Israel. Now, he's had three and a half years, uh, seven and a half years where he has been in battle this whole time from Hebron, and he's been battling with Ashibosheth, Saul's son. And now he is king over all of Israel, and that news traveled very quickly, as all news has always traveled very quickly. And the Philistines heard that David is king over Israel. And they decide it's time to move quickly against David. And the idea there is they want to move against the new king of Israel before he has a chance to really consolidate, consolidate his power. All right, the people have all chosen to, to select him. And David's going to be is a great general. And he puts his people together pretty quick. He's got some good leaders. And it says, the Philistines came to seek David, and that is to lay siege to. <laughs> okay. They weren't going to, hey, David, we'd like to know how you, how you like being king. This was, they came to go to war. Uh, the word here for seek was to, they came to secure, secure David and take away his, his kingdom. And David came down to the stronghold. And it says, the Philistines came up, and they spread themselves in the valley of Rephraim, which means the valley of giants. All right, uh, where it is exactly, I don't know, but it's someplace between Philistia and Jerusalem. Uh, and it literally means the Valley of Giants, or Rephraim can also mean valiant warriors. All right, uh, so it could literally be the Valley of the Valiant Warriors. When it might even be talking about 
Armageddon, because that's where a lot of battles have been fought over the years, and where the biggest battle in, in all of history will be fought in the battle, battle of Armageddon, where the blood will flow to the horses' necks. Uh, a lot of blood. And that's when Jesus returns and kills all the enemies with the word. And uh, so the Philistines are coming. They're coming to attack David. They're going, this guy is not ready for battle. Hope, you know, they're hoping he's not ready for battle. Uh, he has just become king. He's, he's not got, you know, doesn't have his feet under him. And there's many Philistine leaders that are a little upset with David. Why would they be upset with David? Because he pretended to be their friend for a long time. Maybe word has even gotten out that while he was supposedly raiding southern uh, Israel, he was raiding their own territory. Uh, I'm sure that secret didn't hold out much longer after David <laughs> became king. Uh, remember the Philistine lords when David was going to ride out to battle against King Saul? Saul, they came to the king and said, uh, are you crazy putting this uh, great leader of Israel in battle with us? He, you know, he'll turn on us in a heartbeat when, when the battle goes again, is going against Israel. And they said he couldn't go to battle. Now he's king over Israel. They're absolutely sure that he wasn't trustworthy. And they're going to go, it's time to go take him out. He hasn't had time to really consolidate an army. It's time to go to battle. And here we see David doing what David is pretty famous for. It says in verse 19, David inquired of the Lord. Now, I do not believe David was inquiring of the Lord every time he picked up a wife. I don't think God would have told him, oh, yeah, go ahead and get all the wives you want, get all your concubines. That's not, God's creation was one man, one woman for life. And every time we see uh, polygamy in the Bible, it doesn't necessarily condemn it, but we don't see anything good ever coming from polygamy. Over and over again in the scriptures, we see somebody having more than one wife and trouble and always and I've always told people I think one wife is more than enough for me I don't want to have more more than one wife and yet we see in the scriptures that it is literally what happens every time there's more than one wife trouble happens Saul uh, Abraham took a second wife and it caused nothing but friction between Sarah and uh, Hagar you know, nothing but trouble caused all kinds of problems uh, and we see David having those problems. We see uh, Samuel's mother and father having, having trouble because the one was really loved, the other one wasn't. We saw Jacob having huge problems because he was tricked into having a second wife. He really didn't want a second wife, but when he was tricked into marrying Leah, he, he said, okay, I'll work seven more years and get uh, uh, Rachel. And so he ended up with two wives and then ended up with four wives in the process as they were having their battle of the children. <laughs> Not, nobody having enough children. So we see that David goes before God and says, shall I go to war? Shall I go to battle with these? Now he's king, it should almost be an automatic, but he's still seeking God. God, what is it you want me to do? And this is something that should be very important for us. In every decision we make, we should be inquiring of God. God, is this what you want me to do? Or should I do this? Too many times in my own lifetime, <laughs> I have gotten myself in trouble by doing something first that seemed looked good, seemed good, could make all the logical reasons why I should be doing it, and then paid for it for several years thereafter because it wasn't what God wanted me to do. 
and it wasn't a very good decision, and it kept me from doing other things that God wanted me to do because now I am stuck. The consequences of doing the wrong thing are long-term frequently. And even if it's not a real bad, long, bad, bad thing you're doing, you just make the wrong decision. All right, God, you know, I, you didn't give me a car five minutes after I needed it. I'm going to take out this loan, and now I'm going to pay for it for seven years. And you get to pay for seven years for a car, which means you're locked into some job. God says, I want you to go to the mission field. Uh, sorry, God, I've got, I can't go for seven years. I've got to, I've got to pay for this car. I've got to pay for this. I've got, to, I've got to do this. So many times we lock ourselves in and there's consequences. Can God redeem those consequences? Yes, he can redeem those consequences. And occasionally he will. But usually he lets us live out the consequences to hopefully make sure that we don't do it again in the future. So David, in this particular case, is going to go to God and say, shall I? Remember when he was going to... Uh, attack um, the, Je the Jezebels. What? I totally dropped that name. Nabal. Fool. <laughs> he was going to attack Nabal. He never asked God, should I, should I go punish Nabal for, for rejecting me? He was just going to go do it. And uh, Nabal's wife went out to him and saved him from, from doing something really, really foolish. And in that case, God prevented the bad, bad activity. But oftentimes God will say, you really want to do that? There's consequences for it, and he'll let it happen. Usually he'll put other roadblocks in our way and say, do you, are you really sure you want to do this? Are you really sure you want to do this? And when we plow through the roadblocks, God says, okay, here's your, here's your consequence. You're stuck with it. And that can be into sin, into just doing something that maybe isn't even best. Very important for us to understand, if we're not doing what God considers best, or has best for us, we're really doing something that's beneath where we're supposed to be. When we're doing the good in, in spite of the best, then we're, then we're actually living in a sin because we're not doing the best. Abraham was trying to get his child quickly in his own strength. And it's understandable, he's 80-something he's years old, and he's going, I, I, I need a child, you know, I'm, I'm getting too old. Uh, uh, Sarah is, is too old. She's not, even, she's not even having menstruation times right now, so we need to do something to have this child. So he sleeps with Hagar at Sarah's request. <laughs> you know, Sarah wants to have a kid too. You know, let's have a kid. Let's do it our way. Anytime we do things our way with, in God's kingdom, we're going to make a mess out of things. And this child from Hagar has been a mess for Israel ever since. Almost, most of the Middle Eastern people are of the descendants of Hagar and Ishmael. And so it's a family issue out there. And it's caused problems ever since. Now you want to talk about long-term consequences? That's a long-term consequence. You know, 4,000 years later, we still have problems from Abraham's sin of taking Hagar and trying to get his, his descendant his way. That's a long time to have a problem. It also goes to tell us that we need to be careful what we do because there may be, I don't think anything we do is going to last 4,000 years, hopefully not 4,000 years punishment for our sins, but we also look at Abraham as the father of the Jewish people, and so his sin had a con long-term consequence 
because it affects his family. And that can happen in our own lives. We can affect our family for a long term. And we see it when a family has somebody who's a drunk. You know, and then the next generation is drunk, and the next generation has a drunk, and the next generation has a drunk. Uh, I saw that in my family, three generations that I know of that were drunks. Uh, and I didn't want to be anything in, in that field at all. I didn't want to touch alcohol. And God's strength has kept me from falling into that because I know that if I had gotten into that, that area, I would have been somebody who was, a, who was a drunk. And it says, you know, David says, will I go up and God, will you deliver them? I love David's question. He's, he didn't just ask him, shall I go up? Okay, because sometimes God says, yes, go ahead and go up because I want to kill you. <laughs> All right, so David has a twofold question here. Shall I go up and God, will you deliver them into my hand? And so his question is very, very complete. Uh, because we saw different people in times when God says, yeah, go ahead and go up. Remember when the children of Israel were trying to punish Benjamin for the raping of the uh, Levite's concubine because of the homosexuality was going on and they they go up and God says yeah sure go up and 10,000 people die I think David was remembering that story when he was going to God uh, God shall I go up and will you and will you give me victory not just am I going to go up and go out there and kill a bunch of people but are you going to give them into my hand you know and this is sometimes we need to pray these kind of specific praise you know God Shall I do this, and is it really what you want me to do? Because sometimes God will give us an answer to prayer that is not for our good, especially if we're bugging him about it. God, I know you've answered me eight times about this, but uh, would you please answer yes this time instead of no? We go back to Balaam. Balaam was asked by Balak, I want you to come and curse these people. Balak went to God. God said no. He told the person, no, I can't come. God won't curse them. So Balak sends a little more money, a little more rewards to him, and he goes, would you please curse these people? And Balak, uh, Balaam goes to God, prays. He says, nope, God won't pray. Tells him no. Balak sends a lot more money to him and a lot more promises to him, and God gets a little tired of it and says, because he knows Balaam's heart. He knows that Balaam is going to keep coming to him and asking him, Shall I, can I go curse these people, even though he has been told over and over again, no. God lets him go. He, he stands in his way to kill him. And that's when we have the story of the donkey talking to Balaam and saying, you know, what have I done to you? I've always been a good donkey. I've never, I've never misbehaved before. And Balaam's talking to the donkey. And then his eyes are open and he sees the angel that the donkey's been trying to protect him from. And at that time he goes, okay, God, do you, do you want me to keep going or should I go back home? I'm, I'm kind of willing now to go back home. If my life is on the line, I'm willing to go back home. And then, then God said, you may go, but say only what I give you to say. And then Balak takes him to three different places, and he still blesses him, and Balak gets mad at him. And then Balaam gives him the idea, well, I can't curse them, but you can get them to curse themselves by sending in your, your women and your good-looking men to seduce them and get them into worshiping idols. And that's exactly what they did, and that's the sin of Balaam that gets talked about. You know, Balaam was very determined he was going to get his reward and he did get his reward and it cost him his life later on we're going to find that he loses his life late, later on in these scriptures um, so we, we see this and he says 
And David says to the, you know, to the Lord, you know, will you deliver him? And the Lord says to David in verse 19, go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hands. Just what David wants to hear. God has blessed this attack. And you've got to figure there, it says all of the Philistines have come up. The Philistines are warriors. They are a pretty strong army at this point in time. David has just been consolidating his army. His army from Hebron has been fighting the army of you know, the, ten, the, other, the other tribes of Israel. And so they've kind of depleted them. They're, they're hurting. They don't have their best and strongest men. He's just become king. He's just in the process of organizing his armies. And now he's got to go fight one of the stronger armies of the region. But he has God's promise that he's going to deliver them. And then it says, And David came to Baal, Baal Perazim, and David smote them there and said, to the Lord, and said, The Lord hath broken forth upon my enemies before me and a bre- as, a, as a breach of waters. Therefore he called the place Baal Perazim, which I didn't look up, but I'm sure it means God has God broken forth. Because <laughs> that's what it tells us it, it meant. Um, Usually when I see that, I don't worry about looking it up because when the, when the verse before you tells you why he named it something, it's usually exactly what it means. And I know Baal is God. <laughs> and, and breaking forth would not, would, would not be too far a stretch. And it says there, and they left their images, their idols, and David and his men burned them. They came out to battle, and this was very common in those days. They would carry their idols with them. And before the battle, they would have prayed down to their idols and, and offered idol, offered, made an offering to their idols. Previous part of this chapter, we read about uh, the Jebusites going to David. Our deaf and dumb can, can protect us. You know, we don't, you know, we don't, we're, we're not worried. And we talked about that most likely being their idols. They understood how David looked, a bit, looked at idols. And they're going, yeah, you call our idols deaf and dumb, but they're more than enough to protect us. And the Philistines would have come out with all their Dagon idols and everything, and they would have offered their sacrifices that morning before they went to battle, and they actually carried them into battle, which means these aren't the big, you know, 20, 30-foot-tall ones. These are little little images that they're carrying with them in their, in their tents. They might have left a two- or three-foot one in their tent, but you know, we have a hard time even understanding how people could do this. But the sad thing is, it's starting to happen in our day and age again, even in America, where people are bowing down to idols and offering, maybe not burnt sacrificial offerings, but they're offering food and, and, and blood before these idols. And it's happening again. We're returning back to what, for us, seemed to never be a possibility. Uh, they, they've got this great big arch of Baal running all over the country and all over, all over our own country as a big thing to look at. Did they set it up in one of the state houses somewhere? It was in, the I think it was in the holiday time. I know it was in New York. I know it, went, I know it was in D.C. I don't follow it that closely, but I've, I've been, every once in a while I'll get a, a little note about where it's at in its current, current time. But you never, we never thought we'd be seeing the rise of all these gods. And it's just a short time from Okay, we're going to honor their stuff to people worshiping them. This is what Israel did. Every time they turned around, they were worshiping the gods of that area. They, they were supposed to be God's people, and then they would be worshiping Baal, uh, Moloch and burning their children to the, to the God. They would be worshiping Baal and, 
and having orgies in, in it. They would be going before the Astoroth and having all kinds of orgies and, and enjoying themselves in their flesh uh, and saying we're worshiping. <laughs> uh, and they did it over and over again and we're starting to see that because we've got all the, we've got all the processes in place anyway. You know, all this free, free sex and everything that goes on is just one step removed from saying, okay, let's now worship the, god the goddesses and gods of fertility. Let, let's have a reason to do all these things. And we're going we're gonna to make it look good. We've been sacrificing our children for a long time. Why not make it now to a prayer, prayer, prayer to a god? It's not long. You know, what has been will be, and what is now has been. And we're going to see it over and over again. And Christians have got to be ready to take a stand. And it's going to be really hard at times because it's going to get to a place where we may pay for our religious beliefs with the very least being thrown into prison. And it won't be too far beyond that that we'll be paying with our life. In the book of Acts, if you want to see what happened in the church, those people paid with their life and prison over and over again. Paul was run out of town everywhere he went. Uh, Stephen was killed for just telling the people that they had killed Jesus and that he was res resurrected and they stoned him. Uh, we see it over and over again. We need to be ready to take that stance to say what you're doing is wrong. If we compromise, God will take and pull blessing from us. If we're going to compromise him, he's not going to stand behind us. When we stand be before him and stand for him, he will stand with us. Does that mean there won't be any problems in our life? No, nope, we're going we're gonna to suffer just as the first century church. We're going we're gonna to take beatings. We're going to take prisonments. We're going to take death. But God says, I've got, if you give up these things, I've got blessings for you. Jesus told the disciples, you know, the disciples said, oh, Jesus, we've given up our fathers and our mothers and our friends and our, and our money. And Jesus said, you've not given up anything. When you've given it up, you'll get more in heaven. God's got blessings for us. Usually, even in this day, in, in our day and age, he has a blessing for us. Not necessarily financial, not necessarily ease of life, but he has blessings and peace. And in heaven, we'll get totally rewarded for everything we think we've given up, if we've even given up anything. And as I've said so many times, I don't feel like I've given up anything in my life. Those, there are other people who look at me and, and laugh at me and go, you've given, up, you've given up plenty, but I don't feel like I've given up anything. So when I get blessed, if, in, if I get blessed in heaven, it's going to be gravy above what he's given me on this, on this world because he's given me great blessings. And sometimes I look at what people go through and I'm going, God, why have I been so blessed? I don't deserve it. I deserve all the problems they do. Now, I have problems. I have issues. But I look around and say, man, there's so many people that really have severe problems and I have not had severe problems in my life. God has blessed me. Am I ready for severe problems? I hope so. I think so. <laughs> but I won't know until God puts them in, in my path. But we know that things are going to happen. I've shared it over and over again. I've always believed that I was going to end up in prison for speaking God's word and standing for God. And I see everything moving toward the direction that I could end up in prison. I am on... I am on tape and I'm on the internet all over the place with my words and I'm not going to recant them. You know, where I call sin a sin, I'm going to stand behind it. God calls it a sin, I need to stand behind it. Why? Because politically incorrect speech irritates people. 
When we say that homosexuality is a sin, we say that adultery is a sin, we say that fornication is a sin, the world doesn't like it. Uh, so we, when we call these things out, we call people to righteous living, the world does not like it. And eventually there will be charges for hate speech to Christians who stand up and say this is what God says. In the first century, Christians could stay out of trouble. All they had to do was walk up to the little idol of Caesar, drop a little couple grains of thing and say that Caesar is Lord. And there were lots of Christians who did that, just try to stay out of trouble. They didn't mean it, and they, they would tell you, I'm sure they went back and go, well, I, I said this, but I didn't mean it. I just want, I want to be able to keep my business. I didn't want to stay out of prison. I wanted to hold, keep my life. God will understand. God will under, and that's exactly, even in that day, it was God will understand. And I've said this, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have bowed down in front of that idol and said, we're worshiping God. We're not worshiping that idol. We're worshiping God. We're just... It may look like we're worshiping the idol. We're, you know, we're compromising to keep our life. We don't want to go in the fiery furnace. But they stayed standing. Now, there had to have been other Jewish leaders. Remember that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and David were not the only children of the princes that were taken into Babylon. They're the only ones that stood up for not eating the wrong food. And they were the only ones that we have record of. So the other ones at least appeared to been to what they were asked to do. Now, did they go to heaven or not? I don't know. That's between them and God. Did some of these Christians in the early church that said, Caesar is Lord, repent, honestly repent and, and correct themselves and go to heaven? Probably. Because we're not saved by our works, we're saved by grace. When we make mistakes and we sin, God says, I can forgive that. There's consequences. You're going to deal with the consequences. You know, those in the first century that would say Caesar is Lord probably weren't well trusted in the church. Now, you compromised. I don't know if I want to, I don't know if I'm going to trust you. They may have been very strong Christians, but they just, when it came to the point of facing death, said, not going to do it. They denied Jesus, which would cause fellowship problems, which would cause consequences. We are going to be facing those same kind of consequences. Uh, several years ago, we saw all those Coptic uh, Christians in Egypt get beheaded by the, the Muslims. It was very sad to see it happen, but yet it was very encouraging to see that there were Christians willing to take and say, God is what's important. If it's going to cost me my life, it cost me my life. And I looked at them and I'm going, how many Christians in America would have stood there and refused to, to repeat the the uh, Muslim creed to save their necks or save their heads. Hopefully I would be surprised, I agree. You know, but I've wondered that. How many Christians would be willing to stand there with a the sword on their, on their neck and refuse to declare Allah, Allah is the one and only God and Muhammad is the you know, prophet statement that they had to say? I'm thinking that if you're really a true Christian, God would God will give us the grace. If we want to obey him and stand, he will give us the grace. Uh, to die, to, do, to go to prison, whatever it might, whatever it might be. Uh, and that takes us back to the story from uh, the hiding place where uh, she asked her grandfather, you know, how can I handle it? Because she had just seen death. She goes, I, I can't handle death. And then he said, Corey, when do I give you the bus, uh, the train ticket? And when we go on the trip, when do I give you the train ticket? Well, when we get on the train, Papa, he goes, God will do the same thing. 
God will make the grace available to us to go through whatever he's asking us to go through. We have to take the step of faith to accept the grace. You know, because God's not going to sit there and beat us over the head saying, you, you've got to do this. He's going to say, here's your grace. I'm going to give you the strength to go through it. But you have to decide to go through it. And a lot of it is, how well do I know his, God, his word? How well do I know God? The other story from the hiding place that is very you know, well known is their dorm had fleas so bad that the guards wouldn't come into it. You know, and uh, her, her sister, Betsy, said, you know, you need to give thanks. God says, in everything, give thanks. She goes, there's no way I'm giving thanks for the fleas. And then she kind of realized that we get to have Bible study in here because the guards won't come through this door because they're afraid of the fleas. So, you know, and that's an extreme story. But at the same time, they had a grace. God gave them the grace to put up with the fleas so they could have a Bible study. And they could sing songs and they could minister to people. God will give us the grace always. His, Paul was told when he was complaining about his thorn in the flesh, God said, you've asked for it enough time. Stop. My grace is sufficient for you. You know, I will give you the grace to put up with whatever, whatever his thorn in the flesh was. And we don't know what it was. Many people believe that it was some kind of ailment. Uh, many people believe it was his eyesight that he was losing. And that would be, for a, for a teacher of the Bible, that's a big deal to lose your eyesight. Because you want to study God's word, you want to study what's going on, that would be a big deal. But we don't know what it is. But God said, my grace is sufficient. When we're facing trials and tribulations, our life is on the line, our freedom is on the line, we need to understand, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. And he'll, just as you said, he'll give us the strength. If we want to lean on him, he'll give us the strength. If we're going, God, I really don't, I'm not ready to die. I don't even want to try. I'm just going to pretend to surrender. God says, well, I've got the grace for you, but if that's what you want to do, you can have the consequences of not standing up for me, for denying me. All right? Peter denied Jesus you know, three times. Now, he got used greatly. He got used to be the first sermon of the new church on Pentecost, and 3,000 people got saved. But the second part of that verse when God restored him was, when you are old, you will be dressed and you will be led about by others. Okay, he had a consequence. He had a consequence that he wasn't going to be strong toward the very end, that he was going to be led, led by others to his execution. All right, there's always consequence for a wrong. It doesn't mean God can't use us or won't use us, it just means there are consequences. Saul or Paul of Tarsus had all kinds of consequences. He chased after Christians. He murdered Christians. And he had consequences. God made his life very miserable and said, my grace is sufficient for you, but you're going to pay for all the pain and suffering that you had. Verse 21, they left their idols out there, and David and his men burnt them. <laughs> yeah. Didn't keep the gold, didn't keep the silver. They went out and they just burnt all the idols they can find and uh, destroyed them because they were victorious. God had given them victory. The other people thought they were going to be victorious with their idols. Verse 22, And the Philistines came up yet again and spread themselves in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, shall, You shall not go up, but go around behind them and come over against, them by the, against the mulberry trees and let it be that when you hear the sound of the going of the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall bestir yourself, and then shall the Lord go out before you and smite the Philistines. 
And David did so as the Lord had commanded him, and he smote the Philistines from Geba until they came to Gaza. So this time God says, no, you're not to go out and do a frontal battle. He goes, go send your men out around behind them to the mulberries. Apparently there were mulberry trees somewhere behind, the, behind them in this valley. And God says, go around the backside of them. Now, too often we as Christians always try to engage the enemy head on. And there's a time, there are times when God says, I don't want you just to go straight at them. Uh, we see this when, when we talk about abortion. Abortion is murder. And yet we see so many churches that will go out and they attack these poor women as they're going into their, the, the abortion, abortion clinics. They're not, they're not showing any love toward them in many cases. They're just you know, really attacking them. And that's not always God's way. I'm not going to say it was never God's way, but we need to be very careful and subtle. God, what do you want me to do in this situation? We learned it when we go out soul winning. Sometimes a very strong upfront, in your face presentation is what's needed. Other times you just lay the groundwork. You lay the groundwork of who God is and what He's done and, and how He wants to how He loves everybody. And just leave it at that. And God starts a seed working in their heart. In this particular case, God says, No, David, you're not to go you're not to go up against them directly. Now, I'm really amazed that right after they've been defeated soundly, they come back at him again. I don't know what they saw in the battle, how they saw it, you know, uh, but they got back and then the king basically probably said, what do you think you're doing? Why did you, why did you retreat? Let's, you, know, you know, this is David. He should be easy. He's just started his kingdom. He doesn't even have his armies and you ran from his armies. <laughs> Uh, by the way, we've got our gods. You know, we've been praying to our gods. Let's you know, spend another day or two praying to our gods, and we'll get victory this time. You know, and so he sends, they send their armies. And not just send their armies. They send them back to the exact same battlefield. The Valley of Rephraim, the Valley of Giants, the Valley of Valiant Men. He sends them right back there to go to, to battle David again. You know, and thinking somehow we're going to have victory over here. And David, again, goes before God. At this point, David is starting to th really think spiritually. He goes back before God. He goes to the priest. He says, you know, what does God say? And shall I go up? And God says, no. Can you imagine how that first word went? What God, uh, the, the Philistines are here in our land. You don't want me to go up against them? And then the rest of the message comes out. And God tends to do that to us. Sometimes he'll tell us no, and then he'll wait to tell us the rest of the message. And he goes, here's, here's my new battle plan. You're to go around them and get in the trees behind them, the mulberry trees behind them, and wait. And you, you look at what they were to wait for. They were to wait for the birds to start moving. Now, I think about this. If you've ever been in the forest and you get anywhere near a bird, they start moving. So in one sense, this is a miracle that the birds didn't start moving when the whole army is standing underneath them in the first place. Very much a sign that God was in this because when they started tromping around in the forest, the birds would have gotten scared and, and flown away in most cases. And yet they didn't until God set the time. All of nature, other than human beings, <laughs> listens to God. <laughs> uh, they obey God. Even though they're in a fallen nature, they obey God and does, and, and does the things he tells them to do. Only human beings are dumb enough to disobey God. <laughs> and we all do it all the time. God, I think I know just a little better than you do. 
I know that you're omnipotent, God, and that you're omniscient, and you, and you have nothing but good for me, but God, I know better. And, and then when I say these things, you know, I know that we don't literally say that to God. But isn't that what we're really saying when we disobey, you know, we disobey and do things our way? God, uh, I know you're really powerful. I know you know everything. I know you know the beginning from the end. I know you've got a really good plan for me, but uh, in this particular case, God, I think I know a little better than you do, and I'm going to do it my way. We all do it way too frequently, all of us. We sin every day. We disobey God every day because somehow we think we just know better. And in this case, David sends his men around and go back out to the mulberry bush uh, uh, trees and they wait. One of the hardest things to do is to wait for God. You know, because we are impatient people, all of us are very impatient people. God, you didn't answer my prayer yesterday. I know I just prayed it today, but you didn't answer it yesterday. I'm willing to wait for another five minutes, and if you don't answer my prayer, I'm going to do it myself. And God's saying, well, the answer is tomorrow. The answer is next week. Abraham, you're, I know you want this child, but, uh, and you're only 70 years old, but I'm going to give it to you when you're, nine, when you're 100. Just wait. Yeah. I'm going to give you a child. You're going to have a great nation. You're going to be, you're going to be this, that, and the other thing. And he takes it into his own hand because he gets tired of waiting. How easy is it for us to get tired of waiting for God's time? And especially when people are looking, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about that? How are you going to fix this? How are you going to fix that? You really should be doing something. I'm waiting for God's direction. And yet the world will always be out there. Sarah told Abraham, you know, we, you know you're getting old. I'm too old. Let's fix this problem. We're going to, we're going to help God fix our problem. You know, we're, going to, we're going to help God get, get this. And when we try to help God, we always make a mess out of things. When we walk with him, it's going to be a much easier life. And in this case, David says, God, oh, God, you don't want me to go frontal assault? You want me to go circle behind him? Okay, now we'll go. And they get into the trees, and they have to wait. What are they waiting for? The birds to move. Can you imagine taking your cue on the attack from the birds? <laughs> you know, we're standing under the trees. Okay, God, uh, where are these birds, and when do we get to attack? And it doesn't tell us how long they waited. It could have been hours. It could have been days. Could have been weeks, I doubt it. But I mean, we don't know how long God had the army standing under the trees waiting for the birds to move. Looking up, say, okay. Oh, yeah, you can bet. It's like, okay, hey, stupid bird, would you, would you just get moving? <laughs> yeah, hopefully they went throwing rocks at him to try to hurry it up. But, but you know, we do that kind of stuff all the time with God. God, you're just not moving at the speed I want you to move. You know, which is one of the things with Shadrach, Shadrach, and Abednego I love because they're called before the king. And I've always loved their answer. When the king says, who can deliver you from my hand? They go, our God, our, my, our God can deliver us from your hand, but whether he does or whether he does not, we will not bow. To your God. You know, uh, and I've always loved that answer. Our God's able to do it, but whether he does or he doesn't, we don't care. We're, we're willing to sacrifice our lives if that's what it takes. And they were cast into the fire, fully expecting to be dead and meeting God in heaven. And they meet him in the fire. And they get taken out of the fire. And Jesus disappears out of the fire. He doesn't come back out with them. 
That sometimes happens. We go into the fire, God is there, and he delivers us from the fire. But that is not 100% of the time. Every one of the apostles other than John died a martyr's death. And these are guys, if you wanted to pick anybody who shouldn't have died a martyr's death, they would have been it. They were the ones that started the, started the church. They're the ones that taught all about Jesus. They're the ones that spread it all, all over the Roman Empire. You go, God, they've done all kinds of things. They deserve to die of old age. And God says, nope, they're going to die. Fox's book of martyrs is full of people who gave their life for Christ. Not everybody gave their life for Christ. Not everybody denied him to keep their life. Some people died as a martyr. Some people lived out their life. Some people denied Jesus. We don't know who we are until we have to go through it. If God wants us to give our life for us, he will give us the grace to be able to step up and say, I am not going to deny Jesus. I'm willing to take whatever consequences. If he delivers me from this, that's great. If he takes me home, that's great. And we need to be ready to take those stances. But one thing I can tell you, if you're not ready to take those stances in little problems in your life, you will not take that stance in a, in a big problem. If you're not willing to say God is God in, when nothing is at stake other than you're being made fun of or something, you will not make it when your life is at stake. It won't be, it won't be something you can do then. We need to practice a daily life of living for God and, and being willing to sacrifice for him whether it's our reputation, a promotion, even a job. Sometimes it's going to cost a job to stand for God. It may cost our reputation with people. Well, you know, one drink, you know, this is one thing I heard so many times with, my, with fellow man, workers at a party. You know, one drink's not going to hurt you. Well, you know what? I'm not going to test that. God has told me not to drink. I'm not going to drink, and one drink could be bad for me may not make me drunk, it may not make me stupid, it may not cost me anything, but it will be wrong because God told me not to. And very important for us to understand what God has told us to do. We stand strong on the little things, we stand strong on the things that he has given us conviction on, and stay firm on them. And conviction is the most important thing. We may know God's word, but we need to take his word from just knowing his word to conviction. And conviction is where I say, God, you have made it that I will not do this area because you've said not to and you've given me the strength to do it. Uh, when I was a young, young person, I remember this, uh, this uh, little comic thing, and it says the chicken had made a commitment to the breakfast. The pig had made a commitment <laughs> to the breakfast. It, it gave its entire life to, for that breakfast. The chicken, I'll give you all the eggs you want. I'm not, I'm not losing anything. And most... Most Christians might be the chicken. I'll give you some of my money. I'll give you some of my time. But don't ask me to give you everything, God. We need, in this case, to be more like the pig. <laughs> okay, you need bacon or ham for this meal? I'm going to give it. <laughs> I'm going to give you everything I have so that you can have what's needed. And, you know, I don't want to call us pigs, but, you know, I really want us to say, you know, are we, making, are we really ready to make a commitment to God that everything is his? Everything I own is his, my life is his, my health is his. Everything I have belongs to him, no matter what I see in this world. Or am I going to be the chicken saying, okay, here's, here's some eggs. I don't, I don't want any chicken legs on this breakfast. I don't want any chicken wings on this breakfast, but I'll give you all the eggs to breakfast that you want. And most Christians, unfortunately, are the chicken. But all of that comes down to what is our commitment? What am I 
what do I know about God's word? And that's what all of our tests and trials are all about anyway. What do I know about his word? And what am I committed to on his word? And those commitments, then God will come along and he'll send plenty of tests for us. Okay, this is your commitment? You think you really believe this? Let me put you into a trial to see, do you believe it? But each one of those trials that test our commitments are ultimately leading to the time when we're going to have to possibly give up our freedom or our life. If you, and that's what I said. If we can't be committed in simple things, not drinking, not smoking, coming to church, reading the word of God, uh, whatever other thing he's got out for us, you know, keeping our life pure sexually, if we can't keep those commitments, we're not going to keep the commitment when our, to Christ when our life is on the line. I mean, and this is just it. Will we keep all of them? No, we're, we're, we're going to fail every once in a while. But if we keep most of our commitments, then we can say, I'm building that strength to make my commitment to the ultimate. If we fail at all those minor commitments, when our life is on the line, if you can't commit to a minor thing, you're not committing to my life being on the line. If I can commit to the minor things, I will commit to the, my life being on the line. Uh, David and his friends said, first off, we're not going to defile our bodies. We can't eat the king's meat, uh, food that's been offered to idols. Yes, it's really nice, wonderful food. It's great food. It's, it's the best in the kingdom, but we can't eat that food because it's been offered to idols. And they would not do it. And then they were constantly in prayer, constantly seeking God, constantly, even that one was willing to put their life on the line. You know, give us a test. If we, if we don't look better after 10 days, then we'll eat the king's food. What trust in God? You know, God, you've got 10 days to keep us looking really good and better than these guys who are stuck eating their food. We don't want that. We, we're trusting in you. Each time we trust in God, God builds our faith. He builds our dedication so that at some point we'll be ready for the ultimate sacrifice. And this is why it is important to be in his word, to understand his word, and to follow it. So they go up and around him, and, and it says, verse 25, And David did so, and the Lord commanded him, and they smote the Philistines from Geba all the way to Gerza, Garza, which is all the way back to, to the Philistines. So they chased him all the way from Jerusalem, that area, all the way back to the, virtually the Mediterranean. Uh, that's a long ways to be chased by your enemy. Uh, and when your back is turned and you're running for your life, you are an easy target. The Philistines lost most of their army in this process. Without it ever telling us, we know that David's chasing them for something like 200 miles in between these cities. And he's chasing the army. Their backs are to them. They're shooting arrows at them. They're throwing slings at them. They're catching up with them and, you know, and putting, a, putting the sword in, the back, in their back and killing these guys because they're running away. Worst thing you can do in a battle is run away. And even in our day and age, people run away from battles, and when you're running away, you're in trouble. You're not in a defensive position. You're going to get shot. You're going to get stabbed. You're going to get, get killed. And David wins a decisive battle by waiting on God. And I understand, waiting on God is the hardest thing to do. Isaiah says that those who wait on God will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. If we just wait on God and say, God, what is it you want me to do? And just be patient. Too many times we, make, we get impatient, we do things our way, and we pay a consequence for doing it our way. 
Does, that, does God totally crush us and destroy us? Not necessarily, but he says, well, if you'd have just waited, I'd have done this. You know, you wanted that really bad? I had somebody who was willing to give it to you. You just had to wait three days. But you had to jump off and go do it on your own. You know, you wanted to have this ministry. I had the right person for you if you just waited three days to start this ministry. This, this person was coming, walking through the door who could do it. You know, you wanted to be able to serve God. You just needed to wait three days for me to put it on the heart of the leadership to even be looking for that job. We never know what can happen. There's all kinds of stories, human stories even, you know, there's all the stories about the greatest gold, gold vein that had ever been, been discovered and the, the miner stopped digging three feet before the gold, gold main, vein, sold his, sold his claim and the next guy came in, one pick, one pick later is, is ultra rich because he had that perseverance to go one more, you know, one more foot, two, three more feet. Uh, the story of Thomas Edison when he was discovering the light bulb and it took, I can't remember how many times, you know, but he had hundreds of failures, if not a thousand failures. And, and somebody one time asked him, well, how, don't you feel like a failure uh, making all those uh, bad light bulbs? And his answer was, I wasn't a failure. I successfully identified however many times ways to not make a light bulb. Okay, he was so sure he could do it that all he says, well, that one didn't work. We'll go to the next one. That one didn't work. We'll go to the next one. We have to develop that kind of an attitude. God, I'm going to keep going until you tell me to stop. And if you tell me to stop, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait to start. And I'm the type of person, I have to be very careful to wait to start till God tells me because I am the person who will keep doing something until God makes it so clear to me that I'm not supposed to. And that usually means doing something severe to me <laughs> because I'm the type that I persevere until something is done. So over the years, I've learned to wait more for God and say, God, I don't want to have to do something and make you have to, to smack me upside the head with a two by four to get my attention and say, stop. So it is very important for us to be able to sit back and say, God, teach me to wait. Teach me to wait and wait for what you want me to do and say, God, I'm waiting for you. Now, the flip side of that is sometimes we're waiting when God has already told us to do. And that's a problem. Uh, I had a place in time when God said, I want you just to rest and wait. You've been too busy in the other churches, churches you've been to. Just wait. I got so comfortable waiting that when he said, get moving, he basically had to kick me in the butt to get moving. Uh, so you can wait too long. So it, the trick on this is always come before God. When he says, wait, wait. When he says, move, get up and move. You know, because I was getting to go, oh, God, you know, God, I'm really enjoying this, just sitting in services and, and having fun worshiping and everything. No, God, I don't want to do that. I was asked like five times by the leader, you know, of that, that area. to He was persevering, and I was ignoring it. I knew God wanted me to do it after the second, second time, and I still was putting it off. I had just gotten comfortable waiting. Now, after a while, I wasn't waiting anymore. I was just comfortable. And... Uh, so we want to be careful. When God says move, get up and move. When he says wait, wait. And God is telling us to move a lot more than he's telling us to wait. Uh, we just need to be ready to, to move. And in here we see both, both directions. The first time David was told, go. Get out there and beat him. The other time was, okay, go around him and wait for me to tell you to, to make this attack. Moses did the same thing. 
know, before he was exiled from Egypt, he knew that, you know, he knew he was going to be the deliverer of Egypt, uh, of the Israelites from Egypt, and he decided he was going to try to do it his own way, and killed one of the, the uh, slave drivers, and ended up with Pharaoh wanting his life. So he ran away, and hid for 40 years. Now, and then, then he got so used to waiting, God says, I want you to go back, and that's the whole, the whole thing at the burning bush, and he says, well, you know, God, uh, I'm not the right person. I can't speak. I can't do this. I'm not the right person. And finally, God says, get your butt in gear and move. But he's a great example, doing things the wrong way to start with, having a consequence, which for 40 years being isolated, and it was 40 years, it was teaching him to be more humble, let the, let the Pharaoh who had who he defended die so that the death sentence was no longer on his head. Uh, teach him to be humble. But then that other side of the coin is we can sometimes get so much at rest that when God says, okay, now's the time, there we go, uh-uh, nope, I'm, I, I like this rest stuff. I don't want to go out and serve you anymore, God. And God says, get moving. And either direction, he can make life miserable. If we're supposed to be waiting for him, he'll make life miserable if we keep trying to do it, if we're supposed to go forward, he'll make life miserable when we're not going forward. David, at least at this point in his life, <laughs> is listening. He had learned how to be a leader of Egypt. That's what he was trained for. When he told God, I'm not, I'm not the man to go lead these people, God's saying, uh, why did you think I had you 40 years in, the king, in, the, in Pharaoh's palace learning how to run a country? You are exactly the man I need over there. You are trained. You are ready to go. And sometimes it happens, even in churches, we get so used to good training, good teaching, and we kind of go, God, you know, I don't want to move on. I'm enjoying being taught. I don't want to be the teacher. I don't want to be the, I don't want to go someplace where I'm now going to be looked at as the leader and the, and the strong person. I'm just enjoying being taught. That's where I was when God said, be, be still and be quiet. All right, God, I'm, I'm happy just sitting here. Uh, yeah, I'm a teacher. I know you've called me to be a pastor, but I'm just enjoying this sitting back and being taught. It's so much fun. I don't have people to be responsible for. I'm not the one having to study to teach, and this is fun. I knew where God wanted me. I knew what he wanted, and it was like, okay, God, I'm just enjoying, you know, enjoying this. And God made life miserable for again for a couple months while I had to learn to go step back out and do what I was supposed to do. Over the years, I've learned that God gets his way eventually. He will keep working the circumstances until we finally get tired. Whether it's hours, days, months, years, decades, <laughs> God will get his way. Most of us don't live all long enough to be centuries, but if you want to fight God for a century, he will get his way, and you will eventually do what he asked you to do however many years earlier. Don't fight God. <laughs> if he tells you to be still, be still. If he tells you to move, move. The children of Israel were led to the wilderness by the pillar, pillar by, night, uh, by day and the, and the fire by night. When it moved, they moved. You know, they weren't going to go, oh, you know, God, I'm a little tired. I just put up my tent last night, this morning, and now you're making me take it down to move again? I'm not moving. Well, you probably could do that, but you knew we're going to be left behind. You would have been only one of two or three people that said, I'm going to stay behind because everybody else was moving with God. We do this so often. I know, God, that you're moving, but I just don't feel like moving. And God says, okay, fine. You can, you can deal with the lions and the jaguars and the leopards and all the other things that are going to attack you because you're by yourself, or you can stay with me and be protected. 
It's better to be protected. <laughs> better to do what you're supposed to do. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this lesson. Lord, teach us to follow you with willing hearts and not have to be forced to follow you. Help prepare our hearts to, to live the life that you're expecting us to live. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.